1: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Rupert Everett was the star and director of The Happy Prince, which opened this past weekend in limited release. Rupert Everett's film career took off with lead roles in the British films Another Country and Dance with a Stranger in the mid-1980s, before his career took a nosedive when he came out as gay. He resurfaced in the late 1990s as a Hollywood star in the film My Best Friend's Wedding, a period that lasted a short time before roles again dried up. Shortly thereafter, he began working on a screenplay about Oscar Wilde's final years, which finally has reached the screen as The Happy Prince. The film stars Rupert Everett, who also served as director and screenwriter. Rupert Everett, you have been interested in Oscar Wilde from a kid when your parents read you The Happy Prince. Okay, fast forward all these years. When you decided that you were going to do something about it, and we'll get to the reasons for the decisions later, what prompted you to stick with a movie about his late life after he got out of prison rather than early on, even though there are flashbacks?
0: First and foremost, not first and foremost, but Partly because the other three films about Wilde really deal with the issue of his celebrity, and I felt that the issue of his celebrity is the thing that everybody knows. If anyone knows anything about him, they know that he was very famous and that he was very funny, and that he was the toast of a, you know, a, a very uh, amazingly glamorous world. What people don't know and what the films didn't really deal with is the exact nature of the punishment inflicted on a homosexual man by society. And uh, that, I suppose, was the thing that really interested me about the story. And and it's not just a story about prison and hard labor. It's a story about a subtler type of prison, which was uh, liberty and
1: exile. When I looked up a little bit about his history, I found that you stuck pretty closely to facts, more than I would have thought in watching the film. I assume that the two kids, the two French kids, are fictional or... They're not. They're, they're just not. not. No, they're not fictional.
0: They're just not brothers in, in okay. reality. But I, I made them into brothers to, to
1: parallel them with his own sons. But they they both existed. Let's go back then. Okay, so your career has gone through a lot of stages, came up through British ranks, and eventually hit stardom with my best friend's wedding At what point did you come out of the closet? Because insofar as I know, you might have been the first actor to do that. I don't think I was very much ever in
0: the closet. But certainly by the time I moved to Paris in 1986, I was out and about, let's say, on various scenes. And so, uh, in that sense, definitely out of the closet.
1: But in terms of
0: the public knowing, because, of course... In terms of the public knowing, really, too. I mean, once you're out and about, you can't really... uh, you can't really pretend you're something else. And by the time of my best friend's
1: wedding, you were playing a gay man and yeah, all of
0: that. I've been out of the closet for years then.
1: You've spoken a lot about how it was impossible to get great roles, particularly leading roles, in that capacity, that you would kind of blown the lid off your own career in a way, and there were a lot who did not. You recognized this at the time, or were you hoping for a change? I think when I started out in show business, there
0: was a double track going on because, you know, this was the 70s. Gays and black people, funnily enough, were the, kind of the top of the pile on a certain scene. If you came to New York in the 70s, we were ruling in one sense. So if you were a kid coming out into onto a scene then, it didn't cross your mind but that the whole world was like that. Show business, though, was running on a, on a, on a different uh, constitution. And that constitution did not facilitate people going for world domination in front of the camera being gay under any circumstances. And this didn't really occur to me at first because I was, I, I was out at Studio 54 and uh, the Embassy Club in London and, you know, everyone, Margaret Trudeau was dancing with a busboy. It seemed like the whole world was like that. Right. And if you were a young kid, you don't have an overview. You don't know what an overview is. So I had no idea that show business wouldn't be exactly the same. But of course, show business was rattling along on a completely different set of rules. And I remember I first came across it when I was doing Another Country, the film, and some agents said to me, oh, you shouldn't play a gay part. You know, once you played a gay part, you've had it. And that was very much uh, the feeling. No actor would play a gay part in Hollywood. At that point. I got one job straight after Another Country, uh, a film called Dance with a Stranger, which was made by the same group, Miranda Richardson. And I noticed then really what the situation was, because the director, he knew that I was gay. And he wanted to rehearse and rehearse and rehearse the scene when I had to kiss Miranda Richardson. Uh, Because I could see in his eyes, he just couldn't believe I would have any idea how to play the scene. And I used to sit opposite him, and uh, he'd say, I want more, I want more. And he was a huge, big, sweaty, ugly man. And I, at this point, had, had, apart from being gay, had also had affairs with some of the most beautiful women in the world. So I, I didn't really quite understand what the issue was. And we came into a very confrontational relationship because of it. And uh, I think that's when I started to realize that things weren't going to be as easy as I thought. And, of course, being young, I reacted in a bad way and became incredibly difficult.
1: You'd already done a lot of theatre in London and in Britain at that point or not?
0: Um, I was only 22, so, uh, yeah, I've been in and out of the theatre since I was 18. And you, you would never notice that there then? Yes, I a little bit. But uh, no, not really. I worked in a theatre called the Glasgow Citizens, which was run by three very highbrow queens. So no, I, I didn't really know what the world was like. And I knew about people like David Bowie and the Rolling Stones, and they all seemed, to, you know, it didn't seem to be an issue. It's funny how there's, there's always such a double track between popular culture and, you know, the actual the backbone of, of the businesses. Well, after that, you were still getting jobs. I mean, you continued. Not in England. I never got, after Dance with a Stranger, I didn't get any jobs. And I moved to Europe then. And I did get jobs in the European market. I made a film for a wonderful Italian director called Francesco Rosi called The Chronicle of a Death Foretold. I made um, four or five films there. I lived in France. I did theater, but I didn't really work in the UK or in America. Oh, I got um, a, a part in The Mandus of King George. I remember
1: that, yeah. And I remember going, wait a second, I haven't seen him around a while. Yeah.
0: I didn't get anything out of that either. I went on to um, working in Italy, working in uh, France, and then I got Ready to Wear, Altman's film. And then I did a, a very good movie. I got a, suddenly got a movie in Hollywood called Dunstan Checks In. It's a great movie. That was the one about a monkey. Right? That's right, the orangutan. I came over and did that, and then little by little things began to kind of loosen up in a certain way. I got that role, and then after that, at a certain point, yes, I got My Best Friend's Wedding.
1: Before we move on, what was it like working with Robert Altman?
0: It was wonderful working with Altman, but it was a difficult film for him, I think, because he just had a heart attack, and he was um, old, and, and he, he was a bit out of his depth. I think he felt a bit out of his depth. Making a fashion film, it was such a huge subject that he hadn't really quite on board in a way. But it was an amazing experience.
1: Was there a lot of improv in that?
0: Yeah, all improv.
1: All improv? Mostly, yeah. And then he just works with the editor and turns Mm. it into something. So you were freer than you would have normally been in another film. Oh, yeah, you were very... I mean, he he was the complete opposite to that director
0: I just described to you, asking. He, the fact that you were there was almost enough for him. What you wanted to do, you could do. And he would be interested to see it. If he didn't like it, he just wouldn't use it in the film. But he loved the actors just uh, getting on with it. And, and the actors loved working with him.
1: Well, Rupert Everett, then came My Best Friend's Wedding. And how'd you get that role? Because suddenly that's a major Hollywood project.
0: Well, it wasn't a very good role at first. It was only two scenes playing right. a, a, a rather a nameless gay part at first. And uh, I had to audition and screen test about three times to get it. It was really only once I'd started doing it that, and um, getting on so well with the director that things changed. And he started writing more scenes for me in the film, and, uh, and my part got bigger. Well,
1: it was a great, great role. I mean, yeah. you must have had a had a great time working on it. And it seemed like it would open things up for you because you got awards, and it did
0: It did open things up for me. I I did. Uh, I got a lot of movies after it. Um, unfortunately, it was... Um, a short-lived thing, really, because the next movie I did was The Next Best Thing with Madonna, right. and that tanked. And then the film after that, which was another film I'd done with PJ Hogan, Unconditional Love, they got nervous about releasing it since The Next Best Thing had tanked. So uh, then I was kind of basically over. And is
1: that when you began thinking about writing? Yeah.
0: Then I wrote memoirs. Rip Cups okay. and other banana skins, and then I wrote one called Vanished Years.
1: So at that point, with your career kind of hanging in the balance, was that when you turned to Wilde and said, maybe I'll try Oscar Wilde?
0: Absolutely. I thought, um, I want to write something that, you know, I can put everything of myself into. And that seemed to be the obvious character. He seemed like a patron saint in a way to the game movement and to me in particular.
1: As you did your research, did you find anything out that like surprised you, shocked you, or was serendipitous to the idea of doing a screenplay?
0: No, nothing. I
1: mean, when I, I, I knew the story, really, from when I'd first read
0: the Richard Ellman biography of Wilde, And I'd always loved his last chapter, which is quite slim, because he was very ill by the time he was finishing the, the book. And it always caught my fantasy, and uh, moving to Paris and spending a lot of time in Paris, Paris, for me, is another character as, uh, that I love as much as Wild, in a way. So the two things, uh, discovering it, was uh, wonderful. I don't know whether there was anything that completely surprised me. I felt I knew the story, somehow.
1: What surprised me, I guess, was, and it might have been the direction, was the fact that Bosie was a twink, a 19th century version. Well, I don't know what you mean by a twink, exactly. A snotty, pretty kid. I thought a twink was
0: someone who took crystal meth. Oh, that's a tweaker.
1: Maybe this is just a a
0: U.S. term, but kind of, you know, young... (coughs) Dandy, fun-loving,
1: money-loving, wanting just to go out and have a nice watch. Right. In terms of your direction, were you constrained by money in terms of what you were able to film?
0: Uh, Yes, definitely constrained by money and environment, because we got most of the money out of Germany, out of uh, the state of Bavaria, which was amazing. But... It meant we had to make the film in Bavaria, uh, so uh, that was a constraint in, in itself, in a way. To try and find to build Paris in Bavaria is is quite complex, but yes, money is always uh, in those kind of films a huge issue. And every day that we shot, if we didn't make the day, that was the end of the scene. So uh, you know that was a that was quite a pressure.
1: It took ten years to get the financing. During that period, was it often touch-and-go where you'd have to give up or pick up another job?
0: It was very touch-and-go, and there were a lot of times were you took one step forward and then two steps back, and uh, there were about three or four points when I thought the movie was going, and I'd, I'd let other jobs go, and then the movie collapsed. And uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a very, very tough period, really, because I was also in my mid-50s by the time it was halfway through. And it felt at a certain point that if I never did make the film, I would. I didn't know who I'd be exactly.
1: Directing yourself, did you have a, somebody working with you? I mean, how does that work, directing yourself in a film that you're directing? Because I know, talk to stage directors, and they say it's pretty much impossible to direct themselves. Everyone says it's impossible. What's impossible? It's not. It's, it, I loved it. How, how did that work for you? I
0: enjoyed it very much. Um, I think a director's work is mostly done before the film starts anyway, really, in the, in, in the choices he makes with the people around him. And if he chooses the right people to be around him and they can share his ideas properly, then the, the film should go uh, smoothly. And I'm not one of those people who wants to head fuck actors uh, into submission. I, I, I think uh, once you cast the actor, you want to, to see what he does without being all over him.
1: And directing myself, I, I definitely enjoyed. Did you allow some of the improv that, say, an Altman would allow? No. No. Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely straightforward. Mm. Uh, was the entire thing storyboarded in advance?
0: Uh, we did storyboard it up to a point, some bits of it, just to, to show the other people what, uh, some of the other people, the producers mostly, what was going on. No one listens really to anything anybody says anymore, so no one can really ever grasp what it quite is people want to do. And storyboards, I suppose, are quite helpful for
1: that. Uh, Rupert Everett, I understand you're also working on a TV show called Quacks. Oh, I have done, yeah, a couple and of years And that's finished?
0: Ago. Yeah, it was, it's been out for a couple of years.
1: And also there's one coming out, uh, Name of the Rose. That's right. Has that been already filmed? That's just finished filming in uh, June. And I think that's going to be on Sundance. You play yeah.
0: the lead? I play, not the lead, I play the Inquisitor, which is um, the r- role that F. Murray Abraham played in the in the movie.
1: Yeah, I once interviewed Umberto Eco. Did you? Yes. How was it? Well, his English wasn't as good as he thought it was, but it was... Was he boring? No, no. No, he was an interesting guy. He knew who he was. Mm. We talked about the movie and semiotics. There's a lot of subtext in Name of the Rose in the... A lot of text, period. In the text, yeah. Is that, does any of that find its way into the... Uh, well, it,
0: ours is an eight-hour series, so yes, I think it's a it, much better suited series for a book like The Name of the Rose* because it's so dense and it's, it's gigantic. So um, I think Umberto Eco fans should be pleased about it.
1: What kind of work do you have coming up now? None at the moment. Do you have any, any other screenplays that are sitting there waiting? I'm trying to
0: make another film at the moment that I've written, and um, I'll see how it all goes.
1: And I understand Colin Firth worked with you, and he was instrumental in getting this made because he agreed to do the film, and suddenly you had names. Yeah,
0: Um, I'm very indebted to him, because without him, uh, there would have been no film.
1: When you look back on the film and the making of the film, is there anything that kind of strikes you when you're going, damn, I got that right?
0: Well, in a way, I I feel pleased with the whole thing, uh, I suppose. So I I feel I did get it right. Uh, I I made the points I wanted to make. It looks like I wanted it to look. I think the actors uh, are all wonderful in it. I don't really regret anything about it, actually.
1: Well, one final question, which is that we're in a new era of Brexit and Trump. What do you see in terms of the future of where we're going in, in terms of, you know, future of gay people given... The right-wing drift we're seeing?
0: I feel that, I feel the problems are are more deeper than political for me. I think, I I personally feel that the virtual world is is more dangerous than anything to me. This notion that little by little, we're losing uh, the possibility of communication, uh, where we're completely virtual, we have no spatial awareness, where everybody is on their fucking phone non-stop. I find this uh, very distressing. Before and beyond whether we're in a right-wing or left-wing world, I find this uh, addiction to a little uh, computer absolutely, uh, it's like a horror film to me. So, I don't know, I feel so out of kilter with the modern world I don't really know. Um, I think uh, that the populism somehow is a result of that. For me, the center of it is this, this this, kind of swarm, unseen swarm of Instagram and tweeting and all these things. I, I find it absolutely like a, like a nightmare.
1: And as an artist, is there anything you can do about it?
0: I can make my film and try and make another one because I think one of the things most important that is forgotten in this virtual swirl uh, is history. Nobody knows where they're coming from. Uh, Everyone thinks that uh, five weeks ago is ancient history. You know, an old film is Scream 2, not Scream 1 even. And this, for me, is, I think, the death of civilization, really, because uh, context is everything.
1: In that sense, do you plan to stick with historical subjects? No,
0: not at all. I like to do all sorts of things, but I think our lack of context is what's driving us into these terrible, terrible times, myself.
1: Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.